really glad we can be here and to share this day. Um, we're going to touch into some um, <coughs> challenging themes, I think. We live in a challenging time, so, and, but also hopefully our redemptive and hopeful um, explorations as well. Uh, but we want to context uh, the day or begin the day by honoring uh, the Triple Jewel, the refuges. So I just want to um, do a uh, very simple uh, mantra from the Sri Lanka, Sri Lankan uh, tradition of uh, Theravada. Um, and it has a very simple melody. Some of you are familiar with it. Some of you are new. It has three words, Bhutang, which is uh, the uh, Buddha, Bhutang, Tamang, the Dharma, Sangang, the Sangha. One day means one day, V-A-N-D-E. It means I honor, I, I bow to. So, so just to align us as we begin with these qualities of Buddha, Buddhic, knowing, presence, awareness, knowing the Dharma, the Dharma of now, here, uh, how it is, and aligning with uh, our relationship to how it is through the context of Sangha, practice and reflection and contemplation, not just ourselves, but in a collective, supporting each other in our awakening. So you can uh, join in if you like, or just listen to the mantra. And as we go into that, we just then sit for a few minutes to arrive and um, just orientate ourselves for the beginning of our, of our contemplation and practice today.
my welcome to you all and my thanks to you for being here. You know, it's always interesting um, to recognize that we have a choice, especially in a city like this, and I don't take it lightly that people give up a whole day of their weekend to cultivate heart and mind and body in this way. So a deep appreciation for you for showing up and just an acknowledgement that it's a good thing we're doing here, especially in these times. And to thank Kathy and Amy and David and Amit for their service in holding this space for us. And I do just want to offer my thanks to Tanisra, who's my teacher, for just years of support, and um, it's such an honor to teach beside her, so. Um, and a little nerve-wracking to go first. <laughs> so someone said to me on the way in, oh, the title. And I was like, oh, the title. <laughs> Reclamation of heart in our times of dismemberment. It's so what's needed, this reclamation of heart. And to really take the opportunity to recognize within these teachings in particular, but all wisdom teachings, what they have to offer us, if we can hear their call for a response to the madness of what's happening to the earth, to the people, to the animals, to it all. So we wanted to spend a little time this morning just really acknowledging you know, that first truth of suffering, of challenges, of lack of reliability, of these times, of all of life, but especially the confusion, the fear, the instability that we may be feeling, to acknowledge it and also to acknowledge where it's coming from, what might be some of its roots. We're living in a time of uh, great suffering, 
with this collective shadow of the karma of thousands of years, thousands of years of patriarchy, hundreds of years of colonialism and rampant capitalist consumerism that are all based in those basics that the Buddha identified, greed, hatred, and delusion. The greed of we are not enough, this is not enough, the hungry ghost of more and more and more that causes us to ravage and pillage and rape the land and others, including animals, the hatred that inflicts violence on death on those we deem as other, other humans, other beings, And the delusion, that primary delusion of separation, of division between self and other, and particularly that delusion of separation between humans and everything else. The separation from the earth that is really a core wounding We were all um, indigenous to some place and some land at some point. And we may not even know our histories to know where that was, where that deep connection initially was. And we all come from peoples who were resilient and continually reconnected to the earth and to that sense of interdependence. But that disconnection is just getting more and more heightened. I heard the other day a podcast talking about how now it's tipped and more people live in urban environments than in rural environments. And yet Mother Nature persists Tanisha and I were walking around this neighborhood yesterday and there are cabbages planted on 6th Avenue in front of, like, staples. <laughs> you know, and we, we see the earth rising through cracks and crevices. And she's underneath all of this concrete, you know. I was saying to Tanisra, I I love our Buddha, which we got some years ago when I was working here, because this is my favorite mudra, the hand gesture, the sacred gesture. You'll notice that different Buddha statues have different gestures, and this one is touching the earth. As you can see, his right hand. And the story goes on the night of his enlightenment, Mara came to him with all sorts of tricks and distractions and temptations and challenges. And it said that the Buddha touched the earth and said, the earth is my witness. I have a right to this awakening. And in some versions, it's the earth that actually responded, that I am your witness. 
<clears throat> Can we hear that call in the teachings? That message that that is a point of entry for our practice, for this particular wounding and dismemberment, this primary delusion of separation. The Buddha was born and teaching in a time of great urbanization in India, in South Asia. And you, you hear it in the teachings. There are a lot of metaphors about marketplaces and challenges of city life and towns and dominions. But there are also a lot of calls back to the land of farming and agriculture, of touching the earth in many ways. Tanisara was telling me that the monastic robes, it's said that the patchwork of the robes are actually meant to symbolize the paddy fields, the rice paddies. So these messages and calls to us acknowledging this dismemberment, this separation. So I'd like us to begin this morning actually with an acknowledgement of this land that we're all on. Wherever we may have originated from, we find ourselves here, at least for today, but many of us live here, born here, connected to this land for many years. And we've lost a lot of the stories of this land, the ways of keeping that connection alive. So I want to honor and acknowledge that dismemberment, that disconnection, that delusion of separation from the land, and acknowledge that this lower Hudson area has been inhabited by people for at least 12,000 years. During glacial periods and ice ages when there were woolly mammoths and mastodons, for those of you who don't know what those are, think Snuffleupagus. (laughs) Herds of deer, caribou, elk, moose, giant beavers, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) There were wolves and bobcats and cougars and lynx. And they moved on plains of icy land, but also pine forests and spruce swamps. And those gave way at the end of the Ice Age to lakes and rivers and estuaries that made human settlement more possible. And the original peoples of this land were the Lenape. And I will right now say I am so sorry to the ancestors of the Lenape for all the mangling of their words I'm about to do. But they stewarded this land for thousands of years, really living in this sacred circle of life in harmony touching the earth every day, learning to harvest corn and beans and squash as their staples, but also foraging for nuts and berries, tubers, herbs, medicinal plants, 
living in this beautiful relationship. There were about 20,000, they say, or more, when this land was colonized by Europeans. And within less than a century, decimation from disease and murder, and then dislocation as they were pushed off the land, west and farther west, renamed the Delaware by the Dutch and the English, so that now there are very few native speakers, they say probably less than a dozen, but they still survive and live in Wisconsin and Ontario and Ohio. So to start our time together of acknowledging this dismemberment, this disconnection, I'd like you to, or I invite you if you'd like, to touch the earth with your feet or hands. As I name some of these peoples, all of our ancestors in memory of them, of the animals, of the earth itself, all the plants, all the elements. The Raritan lived on Staten Island in central New Jersey. The Haverstraw who lived on the west bank of the Hudson the Hackensack and Tappan of New Jersey, the Weech Kwasakek lived on the east of the Hudson in Bronx and Westchester, the Siwanoi lived on the north shore of Long Island Sound, the Nyack who lived on the east shore of the Narrows, the Massapequa, the Merrick, and the Rockaway, who lived on western Long Island, the Matinacock, who lived on the north shore of Long Island, and the Canarsie and the Marichawakek, who lived in Brooklyn. Ta 
ancestors, the spirits of the earth, the Dhamma protectors, the devas, the lineage of awakening ones, may they bear witness and support and bless and protect our gathering, our contemplation of the Dharma, and our practice today. May they be present to generate the fruits of that practice, may they be conduits for generating that, those fruits out into the city and into our world. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you so much. Yes, here we are. And uh, it's like human consciousness has been um, controlled for so long and oppressed and held and restricted and um, diminished in false narratives and distortions um, that contribute to this profound dislocation and now dismemberment. And yet, as we're experiencing that and we experience the results of these, this millennia of these narratives and this dislocation, as it's arising in our very own body, mind, hearts, conditionings, energetic structures that we live within, there's in the midst of that, you know, this line that's contemplating last night, we mutti sarasabe dhamma, even in that which isn't free, there's already freedom. Even in the most distorted conditions, there's already that movement of health 
even in the deepest sickness, there is the movement to reclaim well-being. So the consciousness is always moving uh, to, uh, to free, freedom, to expand, to open. Um, and both are happening at the same time, the pressure of a world, a planetary emergency that we actually have catapulted into at extremely fast speeds is putting pressure to um, bring about deepening levels of awakening um, through the emergence of, uh, not through dreaming of awakening into rose gardens that we did think spirituality was, <laughs> Nibbanic bliss, but actually awakening into something of a nightmare and having a massive reality check um, that is bearing down upon us at great, with great intensity and quickening. You know, in some ways it's very, very despairing and overwhelming and catastrophic. But on another level we have to understand that we're, there's something's being birthed here. Um, we're, we're midwifing and birthing a new consciousness that's actually an ancient consciousness. Um, or rooted in an ancient understanding that uh, Seb was um, talking about. This ancient way that we understood, um, our ancestors understood, and those indigenous peoples still rooted within a way of experiencing the sacredness of... really a world and a cosmos that's suffused with meaning, that one has a place within that meaning, that everything is alive and speaking to us, that there's not a divorce from the, the skies and the heavens and the stars and the earth and the plants and the animals and each other. There's a participatory communion. You know, before the patriarchal rise of religious um, split where religion became a belief in a dislocation, a set of rules and regulations, a disconnect from that deep, intuitive, uh, profound sense of belonging. And we have memories of that. We know that there's, we feel both the wound of the split, which is profound, and we feel the inkling and the sense of that place where there was connection, some more than others, some are less uh, unrooted. For most of us in our modern world, we're actually pretty profoundly unrooted. <laughs> um, like when, you know, one of the Khoisan, the so-called uh, Bushman peoples, Bushman women peoples of the southern um, plains of the African continent um, that were genocided through the colonial invasions and the wars that took place in, in that process, lived you know, 30,000, 40,000 years more in symbiotic relationship, deep relationship with the cosmos and the world around them of nature. You know, as one of the elders that had survived has said, you know, we were on track, we were a people's on track. You know, we, were, we had that sense of alignment and you guys, <laughs> you know, she was commenting going into a city. It's like, man, you're so off track. You don't even know where the track is. We're so off track. 
we're so off track that we're actually suiciding ourselves at an alarming rate and taking down ecosystems and animals and uh, forests and oceans and coral reefs and you know insects and life systems with us uh, devastating speed it's middle of the sixth great extinction as they say not realizing that we're also up for extinction <laughs> somehow it's you know it's the bees or it's the the rhinos or the elephants but you know we are animals at some level too um, I just came from no, I, I just came from the forest re- refuge I was practicing for a month and during that time um, my partner Kitty Sarah and I have uh, relocated more recently to the North Bay area um, and we were watching the fires that went through Sonoma and Napa uh, Mendocino County um, and uh, looking at this place that had just been acquired by a um, benefactor where we were living, uh, made of wood <laughs> in a forest, <laughs> and looking at the fire moving at 23 feet a, a second and throwing out fireballs a, a mile ahead of itself with incredible ferocity. You know, like a, a wind, these wind uh, storms of fire that that couldn't be stopped. You know, for days, it it couldn't be stopped. And he came in 10 10 miles, and, you know, I started to kind of do an internal inventory of the consequences of, you know, if we burnt down. We didn't. We were lucky. But many people weren't. You know, there many people, and one morning they were there, going to bed at night, having watched a movie or something, and then suddenly at 1, 2, 3 in the morning, they were running for their lives. You know, um, welcome to our new world. You know, fires, floods, and and a lot of this intensity has increased by the warming of the biosphere. You know, the the increase of drought and winds, um, high winds, the decrease of moisture in the air from droughts and high winds and heating, and yet in the other other places, the increase of moisture, precipitation from the moisture being drawn up into the land, so these floods, these rain, rain bombs, as they call them, not just you know little floods. Now they take out Houston, or uh, so. Um, and this, you know, this idea, this is happening over there somewhere in Bangladesh or you know, Taiwan or you know some other place that doesn't matter so much. In Puerto Rico, still, we see it's over there. You know, shameful. But it's also happening here. I know, we had Sandy, Hurricane Sandy in New York. So this, this really is, um, you know, this is one of the symptoms. This is karma. Um, and then I was reading in The Guardian, uh, sending out the UN report just now, going to the table for, again, we looking at uh, climate discussions, global um, international climate discussions, that we're now three degrees Celsius aiming for that, rather than trying to go to the 1.52 degrees that the um, climate uh, Paris uh, Agreement was about. And that, you know, the implications of that in, in our, now our children's and grandchildren's time by the year 2100. 
you know, that, that it means the implications are we're reaching these tipping points where it's going to be perhaps hard, if not impossible, to reverse this momentum, you know, with a loss of mega cities, you know, from you know, the third of, even at 2.5, a third of the bottom of Florida is gone, Miami gone, you know, Osaka in, in, um, in uh, Japan, which is the the commercial center of Japan, gone, or Shanghai, Alexandria in Egypt. And, it, you know, all lower-laying lands, huge swath of coast along the British coastline. You know, and, and the implications of, they predict, at least 275 million, maybe 300 million people's displaced. And we've already seen, like in, in Syria, when that war blew up, it began, you know, there was a, one of the contributing factors uh, was was an extreme drought, you know, where eighty percent of the cattle were lost and sixty percent of fertile land, and the prices of rice going through the roof, and the farmers marching on the capital, and then being met with this force of oppression, and then sparking this you know this sort of conf- this firestorm of destruction. And then the waves and waves and waves of displaced peoples, you know, flooding uh, across boundaries, trying to find safety on boats, sinking. Sort of apocalyptic, (laughs) you know. And, you know, there's still, the denial is so deep in all of us. It reminds me in South Africa when we were in the midst of the AIDS pandemic in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And the, the instinctual response at government level was to go into 10 years of denial, extreme denial. We don't have a crisis here. There's no, actually, we don't have AIDS. And there were very complex reasons to do with the, some of the effects of colonialism and the psychology of that as to what, how that emerged. But it also spawned a sort of madness. You know, I remember one minister proclaiming we don't have AIDS and within a week he died of AIDS. <laughs> this is our, this is, you know, this is all of us. You know, we're all um, deeply wedded to profound levels of denial um, around our devastating, um, you know, the word global warming doesn't really do it. It sounds a little kind of twee. Well, that's nice. We'll be able to grow, you know, coconuts in, in England or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really eco-devastation, you know, um, dismemberment. And so this um, Anthropocene, this is human-created. This is no illusions and delusions about that. This is the result of really a consciousness at the heart of this. It isn't just um, happen chance that this has come about. You know, and Dharma is so causes and conditions. Causes and conditions. You know, to be very careful, I mean, a lot of attention to the causes because it generates outcomes. And this this consciousness, this mindset that we've wedded ourselves to um, is is very profound um, in terms of how we assume it as reality but it's not rooted in reality at all. It's this profound separative consciousness. 
that has led to this illusion and delusion that we're separate from each other, from the earth, from the animal kingdom, from the consequences of living a life abstracted from that actual reality of being in a web of life. And a lot of that result of that, you know, these very long, long narratives, you know, thousands of years of, of patriarchy, and I'm not talking that just as a gender bias. You know, as Seb and I were talking, it's beyond gender. It is gender, very profoundly so. But it's actually conditioning within, within all genders or non-identified gender. It's just as a system. You know, saying it's beyond gender and it's also there's no winners, actually. It looks like the guys at the top are the winners. If you notice, we've now got a, a regime in power here. These are the guys at the top. I mean, do they look really happy? I mean, they really look, you know, freaking miserable. You know, they, they don't look like they're, they're having a great, you know, soulful, joyful, let's groove time. You know, I mean, it, you know, they're, 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 they're empty shells. You know, they're soulless, empty shells that are so craven. It's all about power and domination. And it's not very attractive. It's like, is that what, where we really want to go to be at the top of the pile? Is that the narrative? Yes, that's our narrative. You know, you, it's, it's all about me. I think that was actually said. You know, it doesn't matter about anyone else. It's all about me. I mean, that is the perfect egoic separative statement. I can control it all. And it's all about me. And I am actually a miserable as sin. And I've got to control this whole decaying kind of festering pile of shite that I'm on the middle of, you know. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I'm on the sort of king cockroach on the top of it all. And so, you know, great, you know, happy for you, you know. You look like you're having a ball, you know. I've never seen you laugh once. I've never seen you crack a joke. I've never seen you any eros, any love, any real sense of connection beauty, art, poetry, literature, you know, can't even move those hips, you know, it's just in those tight suits. I was talking to Seb the other day, because I'm I'm half Irish, so, and uh, we're talking about the, the, um, the, the kind of devastating impact on sex that patriarchy has had. You know, it's really screwed up profoundly so. I mean, first of all, rather than the sort of the the fecundity and the fertility and the eros energy being part of this natural web of our experience and our energy body, it sort of became this sinful, you know, the fall. It's not only sinful, it's the cause of the fall of humanity. Like in Ireland, you get these beautiful Mother Mary statues. And it's not only Jesus that was conceived without sin, but it was actually also Mother Mary you know, she was also like the sin being the, you know, the unmentionable you-know-what. You know, but that is a very profound shaming narr- narrative that goes into shaming the body. Um, and if it's not that, the shaming and the guilt and the neurosis that we carry, that this is over centuries, then it's the sort of wanton, soulless selling of sex for our capitalist agenda. Nothing is sacred at all. It's all up for being used as a means for, you know, 
the greenback dollar. And so it's um, so these these systems, you know, these these uh, you know, we can look at them as historical kind of interesting things to to contemplate. You know, the 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 the, the patriarchy and just saying as oh, that's what I got onto that. I was saying to Seb talking about Ireland about how you know the Irish dancing where you sort of like you know river dance and all that. Well. Actually, before the patriarchy and Catholicism hit Ireland in a really mega and somewhat devastating way, actually there wasn't the whole you hold your arms stiff and you kind of just move your legs like in this. It was like much more your hips going, you know, the pelvic area, the, the, the body, and, the, you know, there was, there was sex, you know, through the dance. So it, it's just like, no, you can't move your arms, you can't move your hips. <laughs> And you know, and then we get Buddhism, and you know, Buddhism has its own stuff going about that. You know, I, you know, it, it, it's kind of pretty confused about sex too, um, and sort of very complex and discordant messages around all of that. I mean, I was a nun for twelve years. I can, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and one of the worst things I could have done was to. Um, to to leave that order very consciously and um, very transparently to get married and um, you know have sex. It wasn't the reason I left, but with it was a very huh? with an abbot. With an abbot, yeah. I mean, that was like <laughs> off to South Africa with you for twenty two years, which is actually what happened. You know, you're, you're banned. I mean, we've moved on somewhat from there, but not a huge amount. You know, I don't want to bang on about the Buddhists, but, you know, we have to look at what conditioning we're taking in on top of what conditioning we already have in terms of how this affects the internalized structures of the systemic level of the self. We interpret it all very self-personally. Uh, I have a problem around, you know, my, my sexual energy, or I have a problem because I feel neurotic, or I feel lonely, or I feel depressed without realizing actually the self is shaped by these centuries of these internalized systems, you know, where, you know, the masculine has been brutalized, really. You know, the, the, the very conscious conditioning of eviscerating the sensitivity of the masculine. Um, you know, it's, it's just like um, the British Empire, 300 years or so of it. You know, part of what fueled that was the training of, you know, through boarding schools and all of that, the training of young boys. I had a friend, lots of friends that were, went through that. Um, and, you know, sent, he was, family was in Malaysia, and six, six years of old, he was sent on his own to a boarding school in England. I mean, he's still sort of in recovery. I don't even know if he knows that he's in recovery. But it's very, very um, you know, to, to really withstand an isolated, emotionally dis, dis, you know, um, disconnected life, uh, inner life so that you could withstand being lonely and then project all that rage and all that dissonance and all that um, fear onto the natives who are really, really, you know, um, uncivilized. (laughs) 
and needing to be civilized, not realizing the very act of the so-called civilization was profoundly um, violent and uncivilized in and of itself, and sort of trashing sort of systems and peoples and so the you know these these resonances of of you know and then these uprooted like like pioneer countries like America South Africa Australia where we came in and colonized and uprooted we were already uprooted and then uprooting and decimating um, and then the sort of you know not only the brutalizing of the masculine but the objectification of the feminine you know becomes an object. You know, women as objects, sexual objects, as not as living beings, the sort of tyranny of gender at some level. That uh, you know, we live in these art, these kind of these conditioned. It's like human consciousness. The place of freedom is not in the systems; it's in the consciousness, human consciousness. So in the Dharma, we're really exploring the freedom of consciousness, and really also exploring and looking at how this separative consciousness, this abstraction from the belonging in life, where we actually at one point experienced ourselves as participatory beings in the web of life, and that everything had meaning, everything was, had, uh, was, was, had a sacredness, this body, this sexuality, this relational field, and not to romanticize, yes, you know, we can't go back, we can only really go forward, but we can actually understand what we, when we go forward, what we need to bring with us as we go forward, what we need to reclaim, so we don't just perpetuate this endless wounding of the separative consciousness in this sort of nexus of religious and political power, where, you know, there's this sort of hierarchy you know, uh, sort of disembodied sky god over humans, god of our projections, and humans over nature and people, men over women, white people over people of color, Christianity over other religions, America and the West over the majority world, the rational over the intuitive, um, felt sense emotional. So these systems and these paradigms that have power, it's not only just internal resonances from how we're shaped and conditioned by these these millennia stories of patriarchy, colonialism, white supremacy, capitalism, greed, hatred, and delusion, infusing them all. Um, As the Buddha said, underneath everything is the greed, hatred, and delusion through these systems. But, you know, to actually realize this is about a power and the loss of real power, the power of the heart, power of love, you know, and to replace that with the power of domination, power of extraction. So just, just to, to, when we start to look at, you know, how have we got to the place where we're so abstracted from our natural world that we're actually creating the conditions for our extinction? Because that actually is what's happening. Mm. How did we get here? And how do we, not only as a historical kind of exploration, but how do we uh, feel that in our bodies and in our hearts? And what does it mean that we're sort of morphing into a sort of, uh, like a machinery, a techno-machinery, 
you know, does this, will this help? Will, will, we, will the technology fix it? I think that's what we're hoping. We'll be able to suck out the CO2 from the, from the atmosphere and we'll have Elon Musk ride to the rescue. <laughs> you know, go for it. Just totally, Elon Musk. Man, yeah. But, you know, I, I really suspect if we don't have a radical change of consciousness, if we don't free human consciousness, which is what really the Buddhist teaching is essentially about, the Dharma, if we don't actually connect with the living Dharma, the living intelligence, you know, Dharma is another word for nature, the immediate here and now living intelligence of intuitive conscious awareness as heart, as the core if we don't actually realign with that and allow that to infuse our systems, then we might have the best system in the world, but it's not really going to radically, it's going to, dec- it's going to corrupt because we haven't solved the issue of our greed for power, our greed for domination, our need for endless wealth and consumption. So returning, you know, and, we, and we'll also produce like this, like, um, um, Syrian media organizer said, you know, what is crucial to understand is that what's happened, you know, what does produce the radicalization of people that go to radicalized groups? You know, if we don't understand that there's a complete and utter loss of meaning in this soulless, desacralized world, complete and utter loss of belonging... You know, if we don't actually reclaim some sense of profound belonging with each other, not just on my meditation cushion, within community, within the natural world, within the reclamation of the sacred, within the honoring of every living thing, with the recognition that everything has its own right to exist, that everything is actually has its own conscious awareness even if we don't see that, plants, earth, stones, rocks, mountains, rivers, oceans, which, is, which was what was the indigenous experience. It wasn't, it wasn't metaphysical. It wasn't, you know, a sort of academic treatise. It was a lived experience. Everything had a presence. That first chant that I opened, um, you know, the bridging chant from evoking the earth spirits, the devas, the the dharma protects. That's an ancient Buddhist chant, one of the most ancients. Um, You know, and that was because it came from a system and grew up in a system and the early Buddhist texts and all of the Buddhist texts talk about the relational... Um, context of the Dharma, not just relational as community, but understanding there was an alive presence in the subtle realms, in the earth spirits, in the in the in the land itself. It's just like a, a, a you know when a harking back to when that was actually lived, when it was a a world that spoke to us not dead. Now we just treat everything as dead. It's just matter. That's, there's nothing s- spiritualized in the world of matter. We've created like a dead, sterile thing. It doesn't speak to us anymore. It's, um, I, I'm, re- I'm just here like, this is the, the downer side of the day. This is the, the, <laughs> this is the, this is the unpackaging of the, 
of the first noble truth and the diagnostic. You know, there is the third and the fourth noble truth. But, you know, the Buddha said in the first noble truth, there is suffering. And what do you do? What's the, what's the remedy? He gave a remedy and a teaching and a practice to every truth. We turn to it. We stand with it. We understand it. We open to it. We can't really catapult to a remedy if we don't really understand the depth of the dukkha. If we don't understand, you know, as is said, you know, if we're trying to approach the solution from the same consciousness that created the problem, if we don't understand how complicit we are with the results, not just them rich people, you know, carving up the planet, yes, but we all are, we're all complicit. You know, even if we, you know, try and live a very no-impact life, which I'm sure many of us are doing, which is excellent, but our consciousness, that separate, at the very core, that separative consciousness that objectifies, that goes out, the mano-vinyana, the consciousness that has to name, create language, and believes that to such, it's not that it's not powerful, important, but it believes it to such an extent that it becomes reality. There's me and my isolated, um, kind of soulless, um, fragile ego structure, abstracted from that sense, wounded, we're wounded, we're historically wounded, trying to find a place in this crazy thing and build on that. And then there's everything else that I'm sort of either trying to align with in competition with that's doing me in, that's like I want, you know, and it's like, it's sangsara. So that consciousness, the mano-vinyana, the training of mindfulness is the bringing of that mind that goes out to do that and bringing to begin to come back to the heart, to that, the jitta, the subjective sense of what is receiving all of this. This is the, this is the jitta, the heart. It's, also, it's all one mind, it's just different aspects of mind, different ways of talking about one thing. So beneath the cognitive, in a very simple way, when we, we, we start to make that journey, and, I, and I'll, I'll pause now because uh, we want to take this out into the group more. Um, but in a very simple way, how do we start that reclamation? You know, it's really acknowledging where we are. It's like if you have a sickness and you go, no, I, I don't really want to deal with it, it doesn't matter. And then one day you realize, I've got to really turn to this and figure out what's going on. You know, it's like in the AIDS crisis, eventually, well, after a lot of activism and a lot of um, resistance and taking government and pharmaceuticals to court, eventually the whole community began to, let's turn to this and really figure out what we need to do and what are solutions. And actually it was very effective, very effective um, response that grew up in spite of all the denial, as is happening now. You know, that health sanity, that new world being born. But how does that happen within us? You know, so the heart, the thing about the heart is that the fundamental native jitta is that it's already free. It's already brilliant sanity. It's already aligned with the depth when it's listening and we're attuned to the depth of the Dharma, which means it already has available profound intelligence. The intelligence of being in the web of life. That is our capacity. You're hearing something beneath the separative consciousness that's sort of more cognitive, 
it's a cognitive intelligence, it knows about things. But it doesn't know things as intimate to itself in the same way as the jitta does. You know, that dissolves that whole dualistic premise. So the journey, really, this journey of reclamation begins here. It begins with noticing the affect from the shaping and the conditioning, not just personalizing it all, but recognizing it as systemic within this body, nervous system, within the society, beginning to identify that more. How does this feel? How does it look? How does it play out in power dynamics? How do I collude unconsciously? And it also begins with actually beginning to return the journey of reclamation, the journey of return back home. Back to what, you know, it's interesting, mindfulness means to remember. Not just to remember to be here, but to remember all of it. To remember right down, as Seb was saying, touching the earth, touching the peoples that were here, to see things, not just the surface of what's been here for a few hundred years, but to remember something was here, people were here, land was here beneath the concrete. Can we go through life seeing those levels? Can we remember it all? We won't remember it all, but can we remember where we came from, this earth? Without this earth, we couldn't take one more breath. So if you really don't forget, then hold your breath. Hold your breath until you can't breathe, and then you'll take a big gulp of air and you'll Ah, thank you, Mother Earth. Thank you for feeding me for one more breath. So, pause there, hit the pause button. I hope you haven't made you all profoundly depressed. I want to, actually, I want to really take us into this shite, you know, really, like, let's go there and let's acknowledge what a, what a crisis we're actually in. Let's feel it, you know. And let's not get lost in the, the, the drama around it and the trauma around it. Let's just, like, really, like, mindfully name um, what we're all aware of. We all know this is, we know we're in deep doo-doo. We know that. But it's uh, also, we know and trust, I know and feel and trust, and I don't know, I don't know anything, I don't know what's going to happen. This knowing heart, that it has the intelligence needed for our reclamation. So we can, we'll explore that. So what what, uh, we'd like um, for you to do, actually. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.